0: You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you'll open up your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 3, we're going to be in verses 8 through 12 today. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. I'd mentioned that all of our Advent uh, messages this year are coming either out of the letters or First or Second Peter. Um, so uh, I hope you have been reading them. If you if you haven't been reading those letters, I hope you will begin to read them in your uh, private time, your devotional time, to familiarize yourself with Peter's writings here. Uh, I choose first and second Peter for this because when we talk about these issues of hope and peace and love and joy uh, he, he writes to a very uh, specific audience that certainly was in need of all of those things as they were exiled from their homelands as they were facing uh, pockets of local persecution as they were facing uh, people who were combative against their faith and uh, people who were uh, questioning even the truth and the validity of their faith and so I really think first and first and second Peter have a lot to offer us today uh, in our modern world and our modern understanding of sometimes some of the things that we face. And so today is Advent peace. And I've preached on this before, obviously through Advent, through other times in our sermons as well, but I want to remind to you that biblically, uh, peace is often sort of presented in three sort of ways or usage or senses. And the first is that peace that includes harmony and then a freedom from disputes. So it's a, it's a peace that we would kind of describe maybe as a peaceful situation or a peaceful relationship with somebody. Secondly, it's sometimes used to describe a state of peace or a condition of peace uh, or even a blessing of peace that you might convey upon uh, someone else. And then thirdly, it's often presented as an absence of stress or anxiety when we face difficult situations. The God of peace, for example, when that scripture is used, that's what Paul's intending there, that the God of peace will will help you in that difficult time by removing or releasing your anxiety, your worry, and help to be uh, okay in that situation. But today, the peace that we're going to talk about is largely in that first sense or that first understanding of the word peace. That we're talking about a harmony with others. We're talking about a unity with others. We're talking about uh, having relationships that are essentially free of disputes. And so that's really what Peter is dealing with here today, what we'll be dealing with as we move forward. So 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12, if you want to follow along with me, and then we'll come back and go through the, the three segments today. He writes, finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. For the eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. So our first segment today comes from verse 8, and it is that we are to have peace to the brothers and sisters in Christ. As we think about being the presence of peace to, to work within our theme for this year, of having the Christmas presence among people, our first responsibility of being the presence of peace is to fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And in verse 8, Peter summarizes really the previous teachings um, by that word, finally, that he uses there at the beginning of verse 8. There are some who who think that perhaps he's just referring back to the last 10, 15, 20 verses. There are others who think he's referring back to the entirety of what he's written from 1 Peter 1 and following. Um, I tend to be in that camp, that he's really summarizing from 1 Peter 1 all the way to 1 Peter 3, 7 in this sense. But regardless, he sums it up and says, finally, and then he uses these five adjectives to describe how we are to have the presence of peace with the brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, the Greek is sometimes very interesting, and this is one of those settings, because I said five adjectives, and as you're looking at it in English, you might be thinking, well, there's lots of words other than the adjectives. The Greek actually words it in this way, all be... And then he uses these five adjectives. So all of this other language that in our English translations is filler language to sort of help us to understand what these adjectives mean or how these adjectives are to be described to us. And I actually want to start with the one that's in the middle, right there at the end of verse eight. He says, love each other as brothers and sisters. It is the ad- ad- adjective philadelphos, which combines the word friend and brother. And so it's a love that's described as one who has a friendship or a relationship with that person, and that that relationship then turns more into a family relationship because of Jesus. In 1 Peter 1, verse 22, as an example, he says this, "'You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. Now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart.'" In other words, what Peter says there and what Peter says here in using this adjective is when you talk about what it means to be in relationship with a fellow believer, a fellow brother and sister in Christ, we're to have a love for them that is really more family oriented than simply friendship oriented. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians two nineteen. He says, you are now members of God's family. And so in our relationships with one another, just on a very natural, basic level, we have relationships that are merely friend-oriented. But once you start talking about what it means to be a brother or sister in Christ, within the body of Christ, whether that's the local body of Christ assembled within a local church, or whether that's the larger body of Christ of all believers, we are then supposed to have a relationship with one another, a love relationship with one another that looks more family-oriented than it does simply friend-oriented. Now, admittedly, that can become difficult because sometimes our earthly families are not the best example and so sometimes there's a lot of work that we have to do. There's a lot of work the Holy Spirit has to do within us to help us to understand that the family setting of God often is very different than maybe what we've experienced in our own family settings here on this, on this, in this world. But regardless, we become family-oriented, not simply friend-oriented. And so I started with the one in the middle because really the, the remaining four hinge on that love for one another. Just as we wrapped up the one another series, and I I wrapped that up with the commands of loving one another, and I said all the ones that were previous to this really hinge on us loving one another, so too in Peter's writing is it the same kind of a deal. And so look at these other four with me. He says in verse 8, begins, Finally, all of you should be of one mind. He uses an adjective that describes like-mindedness or one-mindedness. Last October and November... Before Advent, we walked through a series titled Lessons in Unity from Philippians 2. And part of that writing from Philippians 2 was on what it means to have one mind as the body of Christ. Even in the One Another series, the very first message we did was on what it means to be one-minded, to have harmony with one another. So I've often said on both Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, when we see things that are repeated in Scripture, that's a big deal. And the teachings and the commands of the New Testament for the church of Jesus Christ is that they are to be one-minded, like-minded. Now, this is often misunderstood. We're going to work through a little bit of that today. Because sometimes people think, well, if I've got to be one-minded with somebody else, it means that we all have to be the same. One-mindedness does not mean uniformity does not mean we all have to dress the same, we all have to act the same, it doesn't mean we have to all have the same opinions on things, one-mindedness does not mean that they that we all have to have the same likes and and dislikes, Uh, some of you love crunchy peanut butter, I pray for you every day those of you that do, Um, but smooth is the way to go, right? So being of one mind doesn't mean that we have to be robots with one another, everybody looking the same, acting the same. It doesn't even mean that we can't have difference of opinions. But what being one-minded in the scriptures means is that as we work through all of those various differences, as we work through all of those things that we have differences in, it's how we work through them. And being one-minded in the scriptures means we work through them with the one-mindedness or the single-minded focus on what is our responsibility, both individually and collectively as a church, in the framework of the mission of God. What is the mission that you are on? What is the mission that I am on? And what is the mission that we are on collectively in the framework of the kingdom of God? And that results in our one-mindedness. And so this means getting the mission of your local church and really even getting the mission of your life itself is really important because if the mission is wrong or the mission strays, then everything else strays with it. If the mission of the local church, for example, is that we, are, we feel like our mission is only to make sure that those who are members of the church are taken care of, then that means our budget's going to look different. That means our programs are going to look different. That means the way we choose leaders and how leaders operate are going to look different. If, we, if Conversely, if a church says, well, we're not going to really worry any about those who are our members, but we're going to f- focus solely on the lost, then again, that changes what your budget looks like, how your leadership works, so on and so forth. Let me use another example, just because it's a very prevalent example in our culture today. Worship music. When the mission of the church is we are only going to worship in this way, that becomes a difficulty when we're not looking at worship music through the one-mindedness or the like-mindedness of what is our mission in the framework of the kingdom of God. We have older generations that love hymns, and I love that they love hymns. And I think part of the reason they love hymns predominantly is this, in the hymns was where they really learned theology about God. They didn't have podcasts that they were listening to. They didn't have extra small groups outside of Sunday school. A lot of times the the hymns that they love and they know so well were hymns that taught them the theology of God. The old rugged cross, great is thy faithfulness, amazing grace. Those, Those spoke to them and taught them who God was. If you fast forward a few decades now, now you've got people largely of a younger generation, although some older folks get into this technology too, but you've got people who are listening to podcasts, they're listening to theological teachings from other preachers they're engaged in small groups outside of Sunday morning outside of worship in other words they have a lot more sort of theological input in their lives so conversely their praise and worship tends to be more of an outpouring to the God they know more so than I'm learning about God from this song if that makes sense And so we sing songs like Spirit of the Living God, where we invite the Spirit to come in. We sing songs like Jaira that we sing here at church, where it's it's essentially a singing to him, singing of his praises for the things we know. And so what happens then, if this one-mindedness of the framework of the kingdom of God isn't present, then there becomes conflict over that. But if we have one-mindedness, like-mindedness, to say we've got some who th- these are important to them because it teaches them who God is or has taught them who God is. We've got some, this is important to them because it's that, that outlet, that release to them to be able to express their praise and worship. Then what happens in that church that has that one-mindedness or that like-mindedness is the worship wars are now over. Are you tracking with me? One-mindedness doesn't mean we like all the same things. One-mindedness doesn't mean we have to look all the same. But one-mindedness means we take everything within our body of church life, from budgets to leadership to how decisions are made to what songs we do for worship, and we say, in the framework of the kingdom of God and the mission of the church in the kingdom of God, can we be in agreement on these things for the glory of God? And when that happens good things happen in the body of the church he says to to do that he then says uh, then in verse uh, eight as well sympathize with one another to sympathize with one another is to have a sincere uh, feeling or a deep capacity of feeling for particularly the sufferings of one another Paul words it this way in Romans twelve fifteen: be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep It's a real simple statement from Paul that really uh, encompasses what it means to sympathize. But it's not just a feeling. It's a feeling that's accompanied by action. Let me read to you from James uh, 2, 14 and 15. As he talks about faith with works, he says this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, you say goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but you don't give them any food or clothing. What good does that do? In other words, James teaches there, it's not just enough to sympathize, but it must be a sympathy that then has an action attached to it. One way to consider it is this, that to sympathize means we attach a tender action to a tender heart reaction when you are moved in such a way when you have this capacity when you have these feelings of sympathy for another person you then act on it and so not so consequently I think what Peter then says at the end of verse 8 is be tender-hearted it's very difficult I might even say it's very impossible to be sympathetic if you don't have a tender heart and to be honest most of us have to cultivate a tender heart most of us have to work at being tenderhearted because when you're tenderhearted, you're often very emotionally vulnerable, and nobody likes to be emotionally vulnerable. When you're tenderhearted, things move you that maybe didn't move you previously. Um, I, I, I feel like the Lord has worked in my life and is continuing to work in my life to make me a more tender-hearted person. It's not all the time. But I feel like I'm certainly more tender-hearted than I was five years ago, ten years ago. And I pray five years, ten years from now, if I'm granted that, I'll be even more tender-hearted then. But, but I'll tell you one way that it shows up in my life. I'll, I'll be a little vulnerable before you today. There's an Instagram account that I follow called Tales from the Streets. And it's a guy in Phoenix, Arizona, where we used to live. And he basically goes around and he documents the homeless and the drug abuse problem in Phoenix currently. And he interviews people, and he finds out what their story is, and, and finds out what put them on the streets, and, and, and he, he ultimately ends up trying to help them, whether it's help them get to a shelter, he's got an address where people can send clothing and stuff in that he distributes out. But every time that Instagram story pops up, I just weep, partially because we used to live there. And I'll just be honest with you, every time I open up that story, I wonder, am I going to see a face that I recognize? But additionally, I become very tenderhearted because all those people were made in the image of God. And are just cast aside. They're just tossed. And the, the numbers of interviews that he has with people where he says, don't you have family? And they say, yes, but they don't have anything to do with me. It just kills me. Now, man, I'm going to speak to you for a minute, Okay. There's some of you that have grown up, or are growing up, or have grown up, or continue to grow up, thinking what I'm doing right now means you're not a manly man. Our version of a manly man is not the world's version of a manly man. Our version of the manly man is Jesus, and Jesus was compassionate, and Jesus was tender-hearted, and Jesus put himself out there for people, and it doesn't mean you have to be a crybaby. <laughs> But the scriptures are very definite to men, I think, in particular, that we are to become more tender-hearted. As God has hold of us, as his Holy Spirit works within us, that should be something that we see. Paul ends these adjectives with this. After talking about being tender-hearted, he says, be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Again, I think this is a very important one because to do all these other things, if you're not humble, you're not going to do these other things. Some of your translations, instead of saying humble, say to, to be courteous. And, you know, when I, when I read that and the difference in translations this week, I thought, man, the, the first thing I think about courteous is somebody hope, opening the door for somebody else, right? That's just a very courteous thing to do. But the significance of that action is that in that moment, you're saying to someone else, you're more important than me. Especially if it's at a restaurant, where you're waiting to be seated, right? <laughs> you're more important than I am. That's what, the, that's what the humble teaching of the scripture is. It's not degrading yourself, it's putting others first. And so when it comes to peace to the brothers and sisters, Paul says, or Peter says, we are to be these things one minded, sympathetic, with love, tender hearted, and a humble attitude. Secondly, then, verse 9, he says, we're to have peace too the others. Now there are some who believe that Peter's writing here is is continuing within the body of Christ and certainly that's a possibility because what he says in verse 9 is this, don't repay evil for evil, don't retaliate with insults when people insult you, instead pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do and he will grant you his blessing. And so certainly within the body of Christ there have been times where evil has been done. And certainly within the body of Christ, there are times when insults and accusations fly. And so it could be applicable to the body of Christ, but I really believe from the scope of Peter's writings, he's making a distinction here in verse 9 to his readers, that it's not just that you have love for the brothers and sisters, but you have love for the others as well. Because part of the focus of Peter's writings is on these issues of persecution and on these issues of people outside the church coming against people who are in the church. And so in this, he gives two very distinct issues or two very distinct commands. The first is don't repay evil for evil. Very likely, this means physical acts of evil. That when you endure a physical act of evil from someone who is not a believer in Christ, your job and my job is not to repay them with another act of evil. The, again, this is very popular to, to say that, that word through the scriptures. In, Jesus, in Matthew, uh, Jesus is teaching through the Beatitudes, right? And one of the things he says in verses 38 and 39 when he says don't repay evil for evil is someone slaps you, hit them harder. no. Nobody says. Someone slaps you, offer them the other cheek. Someone asks for your tunic which, or, or your garment, which would have kind of been your outer garment. Offer them all the garments. When a, when a soldier, he says, asks you to carry his gear for one mile, which in Jesus' day and culture under the Roman Empire oppression was actually a illegal lawful thing. If you refused to carry the soldier's gear a mile, you could be thrown in jail. He says, when that happens, carry it two miles. So Jesus emphasizes this understanding of not repaying evil for evil. In the scriptures, it's emphasized. Romans 12, 17 through 19, Paul says this: never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can live, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. In 1 Thessalonians 5. Paul again makes this statement see that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other, the body of Christ, and to all people, everybody else. Now, just just think for a moment the change that had to occur in Peter's life to be able to write this. For what is Peter probably most well known in our minds for? Slicing off the ear of the soldier. Peter moves from this devoted, loyal follower of Jesus, who's a little brash and rambunctious and likes to stick his foot in his mouth, who takes his sword and slices off the ear of one who's coming to arrest Jesus, to being a guy who, a few decades later, writes, don't repay evil for evil. You want to know how someone has evidence of maturing in Christ? Things like this happen they move from one action that they took to now living in a completely different way. So he deals with physical issues of evil and then he talks about verbal insults or accusations. Don't retaliate with insults with when people insult you. To exchange insult for insult is like trying to wash off dirt with dirt. We don't retaliate in that way. Again, thinking back to Jesus' terms, in Matthew 5.11, in the Beatitudes, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. Jesus never teaches. When somebody comes at you verbally, just go right back at them. And Again, in our culture, that's not viewed very well, is it? In our culture, that's certainly not something that's applauded and represented well through the, through the majority of the culture. Somebody gets at me, I'm getting back at them. Somebody accuses me, I'm accusing them. Somebody insults me, I'm, I'm going to not only insult them, I'm going to insult their friends and their family and their wives and their kids. And, and for the Christian, this is not to be. Instead, uh, Peter says, Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. What? Pay that person back with a blessing? It's the way he talks about it. It's the way Paul talks about it in Romans 12 as he continues in that vein. Therefore, I read earlier in verses 20 and 21, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals of shame on their heads. It's a a description that describes the conviction that would come from the Holy Spirit upon their heads when you do this well. And he says in verse 21, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. And not only does Peter say this, but look how he words it. This is what God has called you to do. Not this is what God suggests. Not this is what God says, "Eh, if you're really very spiritual mature, you might do this. This is what God has called you to do. If someone is evil against you, if someone is verbally uh, insulting or accusing you, you pay them back with a blessing. The blessing could be a verbal blessing. It could be a physical act of blessing. Um, Quite honestly, it could just be the blessing of holding yourself back. It could just be the blessing of walking away from that situation, but you pay them back with a blessing because this is what God has called you to do. Now, I want to make a connection here from last week's message to this, because last week I talked about the fact that the Christian hope is a fixed hope, right? Our fixed hope is on on Jesus. Our fixed hope is on his return. Our fixed hope is on the time that comes when he comes and returns and makes everything right. And sin is gone and death is gone. And our hope is there. Our hope is nowhere else. Our hope is not in anything of this world. Our hope is fixed there. There's a connection, I believe, to being able to live peacefully in this way, particularly with people who are evil against you and insult you and the fixed hope that we have. Paul was certainly an individual in the New Testament who had a fixed hope and wrote about it often. But I want you to listen to what he writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 4, beginning verse 10. He says, our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim to be wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are powerful. You are honored, we are ridiculed. He's saying in these writings, in these words here to the church at Corinth, you're seeking all the worldly things. But we who are ministering to you, we, we who are, are trying to get you to go the right direction, we're just the opposite. Verse 11, even now we go hungry and thirsty. We don't have enough clothes to keep warm. We are often beaten and have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn a living. We bless those who curse us. We are patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. Yet we are treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash, right up to the present moment. How could Paul write such a thing? Because Paul's hope was fixed somewhere else. How can you repay someone who does evil against you? How can you repay someone who insults you, who verbally accosts you, who slanders you? How can you repay them with a blessing? It's first because God has called you to do it. It's second because you understand your hope is fixed, not in this life, but in that glorious life to come. And when our hope is fixed there, it's sort of the spiritual Christian equivalent of sticks and stones may break break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We pay others back with a blessing because of our hope being fixed there. We pay others back with a blessing because God has called us to do this. So we have peace to the brothers and sisters. We have peace to the others. And then finally, Segment three, we have peace as a way of life. Look at verses 10 through 12 again. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Paul uh, Peter... Quotes here from Psalm 34. I would encourage you to read Psalm 34 this week. He quotes from specifically verses 12 through 16. But he talks about this issue of what we are not to do. And I'm not going to really necessarily go through the things we're not going to do because they really kind of already have been spoken for in this writing. But he basically says, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, then don't do these things. But right there in verse 11, at the second part of it, he says this. Search for peace and work to maintain it. And that's where I want to focus today. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Some of your scriptures, uh, translations say seek peace and, and pursue it. But whether it's search for seek uh, peace or seek, seek, seek peace or whether it's work to maintain it or pursue it, the teaching is the same, right? Peace is elusive. You don't have to search and seek for that which you own. You don't have to pursue work to maintain something that's easily attainable. And so we often sort of think of peace as being the goal, right? We want to be at peace with people. We want to be at peace in our situations. But really what Peter is saying here as he quotes from Isaiah is search for peace and work to maintain it. He says the means to the goal are the same as the goal. You cannot achieve the goal of peace by living unpeacefully. If you have a goal of getting out of debt, but you continue to spend crazily, you cannot achieve that goal. You achieve the goal of getting out of debt by staying out of debt. You achieve the goal of losing weight by not eating all the Christmas candy. Testify. Right? And so you and I achieve the goal of being the presence of peace with people by living peacefully. We pursue it. We work to maintain it. We seek it. We secure it because that's what God has called us to do. We search for it. And on a large scale, obviously we can look at our world and go, man, this is what the world is missing, isn't it? Right, like, like on, a, on a macro level globally throughout history, we know that this world has not been at peace. It is said that when uh, Oppenheimer, the, the, uh, one of the uh, organizers, creators, designers of the atomic bomb was presenting their findings uh, to Congress before they actually dropped it, that he was asked, is there anything, that, any weapon that can be used against this weapon that it won't work? And he responded with one word, peace. Our world has not been at peace. It's not at peace. And it's largely not at peace because people are not pursuing peace, seeking peace on a very micro level in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships. If we live unpeacefully with one another in those settings, we are not going to be living in peace, even within the church. All the little things that sometimes go on, all the little things that sometimes work to divide us and to to get us pitted against one another, and all those things, if we are not secure in our our understanding of searching for peace and working to maintain peace in those settings, the common example from this, or the common rebuttal, I guess, from this often is, is this, well, won't I be taken advantage of? Won't people walk all over me if I'm a person of peace? How can I be peaceful in a world such as this? I would say to you, who is your example? Who is my example? I, I closed one of those one another sermons last month by saying we we can either follow Jesus or we can follow Chuck Norris, but we can't follow both. Right? Who is our example? I think Peter, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit in 1 Peter 2, answers that question for us before he ever gets to this place in chapter 3 where he challenges us with this. Look at verse 21 and following. He quotes from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is often the uh, passage from Isaiah that is called the suffering servant passage used as a prophecy of Jesus. He begins in verse 21, God called you to do good even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example and you must follow in his steps. He never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. And once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. How can you live peacefully? How can you search for, seek for peace, work to maintain it, work to secure it? You go back to Christ as your example. And we don't let anybody else become an example for us. I don't care how rich they are. I don't care how well they're known politically. I don't care how big of a movie star they are. I don't care how many stars they've got on their military jacket. Christ is our example. And Christ, when physically had evil brought against him, did not retaliate. Christ, when he was insulted and accused and accosted, did not retaliate. Why? Because he trusted in the Father. How are you and I the presence of peace? In a world that lacks peace, we trust in the Father. Look how Peter uses it there in verse 12 again as he quotes from Isaiah. He says, the eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right And his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Friends, brothers, sisters. Do you really trust in the Lord? Do you trust in him so much that he's watching over you, that he's hearing you, that he's seeing you. That he has a reward in store for you as your fixed hope. Do you trust him so much to say from this day forward, I will be the presence of peace even to those who do evil. I will be the presence of peace even to those who insult me and accost me verbally. I will be the presence of peace to the brothers and sisters in Christ, being sympathetic, humble, one-minded, loving them, being tender-hearted. I will be sympathetic to those outside of the body of Christ and not repay them evil for evil and not retaliate. Trying to live peaceful lives by by living unpeacefully does not work. We see the fullness of Jesus' peace when we live in the fullness of Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.